Welcome to Beyond This Point. I'm Gabriel Stromberg, Creative Director of Civilization. So, what is the point of Beyond This Point? The inspiration for this podcast really came about through our studio, being so inspired by those around us who we work, collaborate, and engage with. Artists, business owners, designers, and leaders of all types. We recognize the value in having access to these distinct perspectives and wanted to create a conversation that puts a spotlight on different ways of seeing, thinking, and making. On this episode of Beyond This Point, I sat down with Fruit Super Design and Older Brother, two design-focused companies that make very different things. Our conversation centered on the topic of materials. This episode brought us to Seattle's Bullet Center, the greenest office building in the world. We couldn't have hoped for a more fitting location to host a conversation that touched on themes of sustainability, consumer consciousness, and global responsibility. In the tradition of creative couples like Charles and Ray Eames, Massimo and Leila Vignelli, my first guests, Sally Ann Korn and Joseph Kent, are not only partners in life, but also partners in design. Together at the helm of product design firm Fruit Super, they create everything from coasters to jewelry to games. Their various products are unified by their unique and timeless design sense and their focus on materiality and process. Their work is available in ABC Home in New York, Kit Interior in Calgary, Shinola in Detroit, and Seattle's Fry Museum Store. In addition to being designers, they are also teachers, currently teaching at Seattle's Cornish College of the Arts. My second guests were Bobby Bonaparte and Max Kingery, founders of Portland-based slow fashion company Older Brother. Older Brother focuses on creating gender-neutral luxury clothing from locally crafted materials, eco-conscious fabrics, and all-natural dyes, some of which have formulas that date back to the Middle Ages. And now, let's go beyond this point. Could you all just give us a brief introduction explaining kind of how your current companies evolved and started and what was your initial vision and how has that changed now that you're more established and doing amazing things? Uh, well, so we actually, we met at design school and um, we got a second degree at design school with the intent of always starting a company. So we, we basically had the intent from the beginning that we were gonna work together and so a lot of our classes ended up kind of mirroring those skill sets that we wanted to end up eventually having. And the company started um, just because I think we, we wanted to introduce products into the world, like we wanted to introduce objects, and it just slowly evolved into this thing that just, you know, we started consulting and we started producing products, and then um, the evolution has mostly been dictated by production processes, but the, the core kind of intent has always been the same. We always had a really simple premise in mind when we started. Um, basically, we wanted to make everyday objects that would make your life a little bit easier and a little bit more fun. And that's literally kind of the premise that we started with. I mentioned Charles and Ray Ames when I was introducing you, and that was no accident. One of the things, <laughs> well, one of the things I really love about your work is its timelessness, and um, it seems to me that you, you have a deep knowledge of design history. I mean, how does that kind of come through in your work? Oh, in every second and moment. Um, we're huge bibliophiles, museum junkies, I mean, all of the typical inspirational things. Um, but it's, I mean, we'll go through, like currently we're going through a resurgence of like an obsession with minimalism. And so, you know, you'll see little surgence of how that comes through with whatever we're inspired with at the moment. But yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, if we can't understand and appreciate and give 
a love for the things that came before us, then we can't really keep creating. And we all, I mean, we always, try, <laughs> we always try and look for those. I mean, I think that his, the historical reference aspect is always a big part of the work. I mean, we, um, are, you know, we are very inspired by Danish design. We really love the, you know, the proportions and the playfulness that gets imbibed into Danish design, as well as just the expression of process. I mean, you, you, the process is always up front in that kind of stuff. And Charles and Ray are the same way. I mean, there's a reason why they're so lasting. And even if you talk to, to Danish furniture designers, they kind of talk about Charles and Ray Eames in the same way that they talk about Arne Jakobsen and some of the other Danish designers because they invented a new process and it was always up front. Like everything that they did was just really on the surface. And that's all Honest. just part of yeah, that level of honesty and design. It's always a part of their process. So, I mean, <laughs> it's, always, it's, it's always so funny to, that's the, literally the first time we've been compared to Charles and Ray, which is. That's, that's, those are big shoes. That's a daunting. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just move on yeah. from that. <laughs> well, how about you guys? So we met in Portland, and we were both working for different companies. Um, and we, when we first met, we just really vibed on a lot of similar things like uh, minimalism, Japanese aesthetic, and um, also sustainability. We kind of were talking about how we've seen different things in the garment industry that we didn't really agree with, like with um, chemical dyes in LA and China and how H&M and other like fast fashion things are kind of wrecking what we know, like you know, their, our environment. You know, we wanted to support that kind of stuff, but there wasn't really any company out there that was producing contemporary garments that we ourselves wanted to wear, mm -hmm. really. We saw a hole, we, want, we wanted to wear these garments, so mm -hmm. we started a company together. And we called it Older Brother because... Yeah, I was gonna actually ask uh, you, such a distinct name, where did that name come from? <laughs> Well, we chose it as a, um, kind of we liked it because it had a fun, playful kind of tone to it. Uh -huh. And we wanted to be a role model, basically, because we felt like we are doing something different, and what we're doing is really hard, and Max will get into that later. Um, we just want to like, set things out, we want to do things a little bit differently, kind of like, yeah, be out there showing people a different way to do it, and hopefully doing it in a way that's cool and people look up to. I, I think it's really awesome that we have both of you guys here today together because I think in a way you do similar things. Uh, you make very basic products, whether it's t-shirts, trousers, classics, classics. classics yes, <laughs> coasters, <laughs> candlesticks, but your specific incarnation of these products is anything but basic. Both companies promote very distinct visions from the materials you use to the way you package your products and market yourselves. You are in a sense elevating the everyday and uh, you do it with design aesthetic, but this elevation also extends to your design process and production methods as well. Where does this exactly start? Uh, do you start with an idea for a product or the specific material that you wanna use uh, or with the way of making things, production method, or is it different every time? Well, it's, uh, it is different every time, but it's usually kind of falls in terms of like, A, what's inspiring, be what's innovative uh, and be what we can actually accomplish because like when we set out like we've got our manifesto as a company to do things a certain way when we find our inspiration and we start to get on the same page with you know what we find pleasing aesthetically and you know what fits in with our concepts and our collection then comes the hard part of finding the materials um, and for us I mean building colorways is just like I mean, we have to really be tactful in how we do that, and we have to really, uh, it's a tremendous amount of experimenting. Um, and it really, I don't know, I, I think it's the hard part, it's the challenging part, but it's also the, the fun part for us, because it, it's really where the, the rubber meets the road. Because 
other aspects of apparel, like it's pretty simple. You know what I mean? Like you can set out and you can make things a certain way and it's a pretty standardized process on how to do that. On our end, especially in terms of colorways and where materials are coming from, we're kind of uh, rewriting the book, so to speak, and we have to figure these things out and work backwards. So it's really a, um, it's a challenge, but it's also kind of like where, you know, Bobby had mentioned, it's like, it's, it fits into our design aesthetic. And it's also, I, I, I feel like it's where the uniqueness in our product comes through because we have to go through all these different notions to make uh, what some people might consider to be a navy shirt, but it's so much more than that. And it's so, it's, there's so much more behind that. And so all the processes and where the material comes from and how it's sewn and where it's packaged and everything is, is uh, an important decision maker and influences everything about the product. It's really tough, but it's also really exciting when we start to kind of play around and, and, and we put on that thinking cap. That's where it really starts to happen for us. Well, I love that, like where the rubber meets the road and that's where you guys really like start to come alive and we absolutely work in the same way and we've always felt that the more constraints we have, the better. Because that's when we can really start like breaking down the essence of, of what we're getting to. And so for us, it's, it's a lot of the same. Um, sometimes it's the material we think of first. Sometimes it's the problem we're trying to solve. Sometimes it's a combination. And often it's a, it's a funny negotiation where, like, because the, the reality of our design process as a, as, a, as a partnership is that Sally will often think of the thing. She'll be like, I want something that's kind of like this. And then I'll... I'll dive in and it'll be this negotiation. It'll be like something like this. No, okay, uh, so perhaps something <laughs> like close. this. And then so it becomes this kind of back and forth where we'll delve into deeper and deeper into a production process, and we'll you know all of the things start to apply. Where all of a sudden cost constraints and timing constraints and just availability of materials and stuff. All those things start to apply over the top, but it, it usually starts with it, it's usually like a seed that Sally plants. And then we will we will just attack it together. Um, but originally, it was out of necessity that we would start simplifying because it was more cost effective. It was easier to work with mon one manufacturer versus three. And then it became this like we kind of thrived on the idea of like, can we solve this problem in one material in one with one manufacturer? Well, just just on that like keeping those parameters, and can we still have the same burst of? like spark and energy that we originally thought of. Well, manufacturing and production, I mean, it's no easy process. And it's full of restraints. Uh, you both seem to use these restraints as a catalyst for design. In responding to these, these constraints, these limitations, uh, you make decisions that are extremely thoughtful and at times bold and visually interesting. Is this purposeful or is this a happy accident? Uh, happy accident. <laughs> I, know, yeah, I would I mean, love to say purposeful. Well, well, I know. I know. Like a couple of days ago, you were. Uh, so they their their new line that's going to be at likelihood is there's this amazing beautiful purple color. And obviously, <laughs> just, just going back to lavender. That's obviously, I'm a fan of that color. Yeah. <laughs> like, you really need. I know. Purple. I know. Just a pack of purple. We're working day and night. It's almost. It's <laughs> But I, I, that is a, I couldn't, it couldn't be said better, happy accident, because that's how we stumble into half of these things, experimenting. I don't know, I mean, it's, we have our intention of like how we want this to go, but then again, too, like we're kind of at the mercy of nature. You know what I mean? Like we are using are we plants <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, it's like, we are all definitely, but it, it feels very much so when you're, you know, building these dyes and putting it in a machine, 
and you're trying to figure out like how much iron is in the water or how acidic it is or it's so finicky but what ultimately happens is like nature is the deciding factor of like what occurs in our dying processes specifically that's that's the happy accident that comes out at the end which is yeah i mean it's like wabi-sabi i think it's yeah. the perfect way to describe it and yeah. i think that like when we first started like I think we were both kind of used to more chemically dried, like we're all used to like chemical dyed, like just very like consistently looking t-shirts and our, you know, all of our garments look very consistent. But like when we first started getting our stuff back, there were like these little, little like darker spots here, a little bit lighter over here by your shoulder. Yeah. And we really embraced that and like, oh wow, like each garment is unique. Each head of the garment is like beautifully, subtly unique. So we've really embraced that fact that like each garment, yeah, is different because of the process that it goes through. In the case of both studios, you make work where, because of the processes and materials you use, the, the objects or clothing, um, they change as you use it. It's transformed through experience. It's actually noted on the older, older brother tag that this is like a, an issue that you had to kind of illustrate or, or talk about. And, and Sally and Joe, I know that there's a certain product you're about to launch where this is integrated into the design. I think this is really amazing. How do you go about thinking of of this idea of utilizing experience as a design element? Or is it, a, as you guys were saying, is it all just a happy accident? Well, I think certain aspects are happy accidents. It's funny because we, um, our involvement in the production process is typically where we will find a manufacturer who tends to be more like industrialized manufacturer. You know, a lot of the manufacturers that are in the US that are still operating are making large things or they're making things that nobody else can make. And so they tend to be these kind of really industrial products. And we come in and we're like, we would like you to make this brass coaster, right? Or the, these kind of aspects where, where we, we're driven by those materialities. And then um, what's nice about the, like, like, in the, like to use the brass example as something that ages, this, this product doesn't have a finish on it because typically if you finish brass, it will stay kind of shiny, but over time that will flake off and it'll become kind of, it'll become even grosser than, than, than the finish that's put on it. And so by leaving it just unfinished, It'll tarnish and it'll start to change color, and it will no, it won't be as shiny as it was when you first got it. But those are kind of this intentional choice of, well, if we leave it unfinished, it'll look better than if we didn't. So it, it's, well, there's a big difference in looking not new and looking aged. And we really kind of fell in love with the romantic notion of when we send these products out into the world, they all look the same. And if they came back to us, none of them would look the same because each one would have its own unique story. Um, we've always kind of used the line when we develop things that's our products and your story. So we really try to keep some anonymity to the products and have them kind of not necessarily have their own voice. Um, we've always loved the phrase too um, by Hans Wegner that a chair is not a chair until someone sits in it. And we feel very much the same about our products. Um, that until they're in use, they're not really that object. Well, I mean, I know personally, um, when I, when I buy clothing, I always imagine it worn in. And a lot of times, especially shoes, I mean, that's a, a major kind of impetus for, for, for purchasing. I mean, how does that kind of factor in what you're doing? Bobby had touched on this earlier. I mean, that is, like, when we first got together about this brand and we started to kind of figure about, like, what rock we're standing on and, like, what are the core ethics and one of the biggest influences of the brand is Wabi Sabi. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's finding the beauty in, in perfections. It's tough because we have to, you know, we have to have standards when we ship stuff to our customers. And, but we also feel the ob obligation to educate our customers in the terms of like how they can appreciate 
the beauty of Wabi Sabi when they are wearing something like indigo where, yeah, the dyeing does not occur on a molecular level. It's not, it's not stable throughout, you know, thousands of, of units during production. Like each garment that goes through the process is going to interact just slightly different or especially with indigo because it's a hands-on process. So it's literally each garment is unique in that sense. That's a big part of our ethos as a brand and our inspiration, but it's also a, a challenge and an opportunity for us to go, hey, like this is actually beautiful. You're the ideal. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you are the ideal customer, Gabriel, because you are the person who can go in there and go like, okay, cool. This is why this shirt is different as opposed to something that you're buying that is exactly the same in every single store across the world. Also, we're so great with the name too, the like Older Brother hand-me-downs, kind of getting more stuff from Older Brother, kind of like, looks pretty vintage, looks pretty, yeah, like. It's already worn Aged, in. yeah, yeah, loved. Say loved. The garments are loved, each one. <laughs> it's like a hug. Yeah. yeah. Well, we just, we just came out of an era where, um, uh, and we're still coming out of it, where people's connections to their purchases, kind of what they're bringing into their lives, it, it's not very significant. A lot of what people bring into their homes, into their lives, is mass-produced and made by corporations. But I think both of you kind of represent this idea of provenance, the idea of understanding that what you buy comes from someplace. It was made by a human with a story. How does that factor into what you do? Do you want people who buy your product to have a, a personal connection with your brands, with Older Brother, with Fruit Super? Well, I like that you said that we were on our way out of that trend. I really like to believe that, especially as someone who, I mean, the products that we're making are intended to help us move out of that trend. But the, the products that we're making are intended to, to kind of not necessarily pay attention to the fact that a lot of people consume stuff without being really conscious of it. That might be a better way of saying that. But the, I mean, the reality of kind of Honestly, I mean, and maybe it's the romantic in me. I know we kind of touched on this, some of this yesterday when we were chatting, but I think that the crazier and faster paced everything else gets in our lives, we want more of a connection to not just the people in our lives, but the objects. And I mean, just recently we were in a kitchen shop and um, it was this really lovely place where it felt like someone's home and, and the shop owner told us this little story about this honey dipper. And he was like, I was in Marrakesh and there was a guy with a little foot pedal lathe turning these with lemon. I mean, we just totally fell like head over heels in love with the story. And we were like, well, of course we'll take, you know, because it was just this beautiful, you know, now all of a sudden this object like has a life and a story where if like we had just seen it and it would have, you know, would have meant so much less. And, and I think that we're all kind of looking for those connections and not just in our lives with people, but our lives with objects. I have a story on the other end of the spectrum. I was recently in um, LA Bay Books, which is a really amazing Seattle bookstore. And I was shopping for a, a journal or a notebook. I was looking at Shinola. My, uh, my boyfriend had mentioned, he was like, oh, these are really amazing and they're made in Detroit. And there was a, a, a man that was kind of shopping next to us, uh, a stranger. And he kind of engaged us and he said, I'm just curious, exactly why is that important? I overheard your conversation. Um, <laughs> why is it important that you, uh, that you buy something that's made in Detroit? Like, why is that a factor in your, in, your, in your decision? And I really thought that this was something that was kind of a mass understanding that everybody knew. And we, you know, we said like, well, I mean, it's, it's made in the US and we're, we're all kind of rooting for Detroit. <laughs> <laughs> what more do you mean? Yeah. And I was flabbergasted that this was kind of a new 
concept for this person. This was a grown, a grown man. <laughs> What's wrong with you? Yeah. I don't know, do you guys have any thoughts on this? I don't know. I think when objects can kind of pick up that intrinsic value, um, and when you can see, and I was talking about earlier about like the simplicity of a t-shirt that's indigo but when you start to really peel back the layers in the life cycle of that garment and we we're kind of joking the love uh, that it took to create that I mean I think it has this intrinsic value that we want to uh, have the customer interact and experience and it's a big thing and we were touching on this yesterday and I, I just it's it's so important we were talking about the aspect of the the slow food movement and now we're kind of switching over, which is something that we really believe in is the, the slow fashion movement. And people are so conscious about what they put in their body and where it comes from. Because finally, you know, over time, people were educated and they started to go, oh yeah, where does my food come from? And what am I putting in my body? And what does this represent? And we look at the slow food movement and the impact that it's had on a global scale you know, for speaking on this side of apparel, like first ranking polluting industry is agriculture. Second is apparel. And we consume apparel so mindlessly and it's ramping up. It's not even slowing down. It's, it's more accelerated. Uh, these big brands, and I'm not going to attack any of them, but these bigger brands, they are producing clothes faster and they're making them so that they decay after one wash and then you throw that thing come come one wear and you're back in the store the next day consuming something quickly, quickly. And it's like that rapid acceleration is having a global impact that is inconceivable how we can turn a blind eye to what's going on in this industry. It's guised in a way where, you know, fashion is really attractive and it's kind of hidden behind the brand, but there it is. I mean, there's a significant impact in the, in the products that we consume. And so for us, you know, we aren't Nike and we don't produce things on a global scale. But what we are doing is we're, we're interacting with our peers in the same way that, you know, somebody who opens up a juice shop in Seattle and has these kind of cold pressed juices and, and makes this, you know, great tasting product that, you know, people can kind of get behind. Uh, we're, we're looking to spark that same interest in the way that people consume or interact with our product. We're trying to make it fashionable and we're trying to um, make it appealing. Because Bobby said at the beginning, you know, sustainable fashion is not necessarily uh, for the design enthusiasts. It's not the most exciting thing. <laughs> it can be a little bit dreary. So it's like amongst our peers, yeah. that's where, we, where we've stepped forward. We say, hey, look, we're, we're here to make sustainability and we're here to, to kind of shine that same light on, on consumerism. And to end this on a little playful note too, I think going back to the customer question, I really, you know, really inspired by Noguchi, who I think put a lot of, like, spirit into his work, and I think whoever's, like, witnessed those in person, too, can kind of feel a spirit from those works, and so I feel like when we're designing, we kind of, too, put that same thought process and, like, imbibe a spirit into each piece with, like, playful details to kind of, like, look you know, good, feel good. Look good, feel good. Yeah. <laughs> so, kind of taking these ideas of uh, sustainability and spirituality, I think that these kind of concepts are being reframed. There's this contemporary version of modernism that's developing and of which I think the Northwest in particular is shaping. Uh, this new modernism, it incorporates components like 
materiality, sustainability, spirituality, human experience, things that were in the past seen as maybe anything but modern and definitely not fashionable. But historically, I, I, I do think that these are in line with where maybe modernism started. I'm thinking of the Bauhaus, where modernism was seen as very human and proactive. Do you guys feel like maybe you're a part of this? I mean, I think in general, we still identify as, as modernists in that, in that way, in that kind of the core of the modernist movement was always based on taking these new industrialized processes and instead of making some kind of, you know, making a Beaux Arts or Macintosh style arts and crafts chair, you're making a chair that's reflective of those processes. But the perception of modernism has definitely changed. And I'm just thinking of, in the 80s, every villain in, in every movie lived in a modernist house. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's definitely this, like, there's this, like, kind of coldness and almost, like, classism that's kind of associated or has been associated with modernism and then very recently I think maybe in the last three to five years there's this new kind of idea emerging and I do think that where modernism started it was very like pro-worker pro-human pro oh I see uh, yeah I see class. what you're saying I that think actually the coldness does. like the resurgence now has kind of been replaced with a warmth and, and honesty and, and quite frankly I think kind of a no bullshit approach to how things are made authenticity yeah. <laughs> authenticity um, yeah, I mean, there's just a, and, you know, honestly, like, a lot of us never really thought about being part of a movement or really having this idea of this general aesthetic or approach to products and furniture and clothing. And actually kind of the new frontier at Bellevue Arts Museum actually kind of shed some light on that. When you, when you saw it as a cohesive whole, it really did become aware and apparent that, that there was something to what all of us were doing unknowingly well, the the really visceral experience from going to that show was I think even for the designers involved was the realization oh I'm actually involved in something larger than I kind of felt like I was I was just, you were just kind of producing under this philosophy that made sense to us and then it was like there are all these other people that we that had the same value system yeah, yeah. so it was kind of a refreshing yeah again about the the idea of this kind of new version of modernism that is kind of developing in, in our neck of the woods. Uh, you guys are from Seattle. You guys are from Portland. I mean, do you feel part of this Northwest design movement? Yes and no. I think Charlie's, you know, the, the new frontiers really kind of shows some of the best design happening in, in the Northwest and kind of brought it forward. I think with civilization also, that's why I work with you guys. I think that, yeah, I think that there is a really awesome movement starting and it like, um, there's a lot of people coming up and I don't know, it's exciting to be kind of part of a movement. Um, I forget what, did I say no? You said yes, yes and no? I'm going to skip the no part, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes and yes. I think it's kind of... Yeah, no. I do find it fascinating, though, because you just... You have no conception of it until you start to kind of turn and look back right. at what's going on. Maybe it's just, like, it's happening by nurture, like, in this, in this realm, in this region, and what's going on here, and kind of the ethics and the design and the culture... But it's like, I, I don't think that, you know, we necessarily set out with that intention, but it's just like when we start to turn and look around and also work with our peers, like we realize there's that commonality between all of us, which is really exciting. And it's like slowly we can see like there is a movement mm -hmm. um, and it's kind of like, oh, you know, there's, that's like our peer in this, uh, like, like, like we're discovering tonight or what we're talking about or what you know, we've been doing with civilization specifically is like, there's a common understanding here, and it is like nurtured in this environment. I, I can experience that. That's been my experience. 
And I mean, I think that the other thing that's so hard when you talk about movements is that, I mean, it's not as though we, we all sat at a table at yeah. some point and decided to have a philosophy. This is what it's called. Come on, you can tell us. This is what it's called. It's such a funny, organic thing where it's like, we, nobody notices that anything's really happening. We're just like, we're making, you know, we're trying to make stuff and understand. I know, we used to get the comment classes. all the time, like, oh, that's such a, so West Coast style. And we were like, what are you talking about? Like, yeah. what are, I didn't know it was a thing, you know. And then it was kind of exciting to realize that there was a thing and that we were part of it and that people were paying attention. So yeah. it was like this kind of cascading. But I wonder too, like, if the reality of the situation is, is that we just have to kind of keep ignoring the fact that there is a thing happening so that we can just keep producing stuff within the context of the thing. <laughs> I mean, I think one of the hallmarks of, if you can call it, like, this Northwest design movement is this extreme sensitivity to materials. One of, one of my theories about how that developed was a lot of these designers uh, came of age during the recession. In the recession, um, you had extremely low budgets and you had uh, to be extremely resourceful. Personally, how did this aesthetic develop for, for you guys? Um, well, for us, material-wise, like, we're lucky in that we made a conscious decision at first to kind of play in the higher like contemporary field of clothes because we knew our fabrics are going to be expensive, you know? And so we didn't want to nickel and dime ourselves. We really wanted to use the best, you know, materials and like organic materials are expensive. These sustainable resources are expensive. Like, so we kind of placed, we kind of gave ourselves some wiggle room to price ourselves using the best fabrics we possibly could. And it's funny too because there is no shortcuts because if you use cheap materials, what goes on in our processes, nature's like, no, 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 no. Well, then you're back on the same playing field as all the other guys, and it's like, you know, yeah, exactly. we're doing we're this elevator, right? Yeah. So one of my questions here, and it, it definitely came from just kind of the conversations we've already had, is, quote, why is your stuff so damn expensive, unquote? I'll let Max answer this well, I mean, I, it's not so expensive. It's we we have an extremely fair price structure, <laughs> but I mean, it's like it's it's frustrating when people, you know, they they you just don't have any conception of what it takes to actually produce a garment and and just volume of scale too. But the sheer fact of like, and we've said that we've used this example three times now, but I promise this is the last. A uh, <laughs> navy T-shirt, which we don't use navy, we use indigo. But the, the indigo t-shirt, like the, what we're currently offering right now, the fiber is from the Central Valley. Uh, grown sustainably in the Central grown Valley. sustainably in the Central Valley. Then, then it is, goes to North Carolina where it's spun into a yarn and then it comes back to California where it's knitted into a jersey to then where, it takes, where we take possession of it and we scour it in our own machines with soda ash and then we let it prep and then we then we bring it out and then we indigo vat dye this by hand six to seven times or four to five times depending on you know each lot of jersey letting but, it dry in between yeah letting it oxidize in between i mean that process is painstaking to say the least but for us like when that t-shirt costs $95, we feel like we're giving it away. <laughs> I just, I just want to give my, my own testim testimonial. Their t-shirts, it's like an angel's whisper. Are you calling this angel, Gabriel? It's the softest t-shirt I've ever, I've ever touched. And I think it's hard. I mean, I think that the reality of what's going on with this question of why is this stuff so expensive is that 
I think there's a couple things happening. I think as the, the consumer culture we live in has caused people to have a misconception about how much stuff actually costs, mm. which is a, big, is a big kind of problem if you're making stuff because you're constantly chasing that lowest dollar. I mean, we're extremely cost sensitive in our product development process because we know that it's like, oh, this is, you know, it, it, there's so many times when stuff gets parsed back just strictly because we know that the price point won't support. And we're, and we're still in this perception area where stuff is expensive. And then also what ends up inevitably happening is that if you're chasing the bottom dollar, which means that you're essentially chasing stuff out of the domestic sphere and you're chasing it internationally, those domestic manufacturers that could have produced it for a more slightly more reasonable rate start to go out of business. And so there's fewer manufacturers in the field and those manufacturers produce at a higher cost. And so again, it becomes this self-perpetuating cycle where even just the fact that we're making stuff because we're making stuff in the US, the price goes up because of that. And it's strictly because there's just not that many people making things in the US. And so it just it cycles through and all of a sudden we're like, oh man, this is getting really expensive. But from a cost standpoint, our price structure is actually, we typically take a lower margin than a lot of major companies that are making stuff you know, overseas. So I mean, do you think that all of you guys are kind of part of changing the way people think about how they consume? I mean, we just came out of, and I say we just, I'm being very, very um, positive and um, we're all being optimistic (laughs) optimistic Um, but we just came out of this era I mean I'm thinking of kind of the corporatization of America where where a lot of people made a lot of money kind of based on a cultural loophole and I mean do you think that you guys we all fell into that though I mean there was I mean from the 60s on where it was like the American dream was having like the two car garage the house and like just being able to consume and purchase and buy whatever you wanted without thinking about it and it took us decades to kind of realize that, first of all, it wasn't sustainable. We just can't keep up with the um, manufacturing. I mean, we destroyed the wood production based on, you know, solid wood furniture for a couple of decades. Um, And so I think there's, I mean, I would love to think that we're on this, like, wonderful surge of everyone starting to pay attention. But, I mean, until then, like, all we can kind of start is this trickle that we've already all started and hope that the ball keeps rolling with, with this idea of, you know, the fact that we're adding intrinsic value and all of these, we're doing this storytelling and all of this romanticizing of products because we want you to fall in love with the idea of, of actual value mm-hmm. um, and not just the cost of goods and the cost of manufacturing and, um, and not really knowing how much else goes into that. And so, yeah, I hope that we're on this up, upturn of, of everyone starting to understand this and, and maybe you're not getting asked in a bookstore why you're buying something or why you're drawn to something and it's just something that we all inherently know and understand. And it is, it is funny as someone who sits kind of in, and I think all of us, I don't know how old Max is, but as some of us who sit in this gap between millennials and, and what is essentially like Gen X, Gen Y, um, you, look at these, you look at these millennials and a lot of us are like these goddamn millennials in a lot of cases, but they are conscious consumers. And that's, a, that's something that you really should credit the, you know, this generation that I am just barely a part of. And they, they understand certain aspects of consumption that the generations before them didn't necessarily have the same value structure. And I kind of applaud that, not only as someone who makes things, but just as someone who exists in the world looking at this, it's like, oh, we're having a different conversation. Yeah, I think, I think Max already alluded to this. Um, like, we, we liken our movement to the sloth movement. It's kind of like when you discover, like, an organic apple versus a conventional apple. Like, oh, this conventional apple was, like, produced probably by Monsanto. God knows what they put in it. They put a wax cover on it. They sprayed it with yeah. pesticides. 
Or I can get this organic apple that was grown like 10 miles away from me and it tastes a lot better, it's better for me. So yeah, we like to, you know, I think Max also touched on it too, we like to say that, you know, you think about what you put in your body and now it's time to think about what you're putting on your body. And so we hope that with our movement we can spark something larger too um, and just get people, because I think people think about their food, but we can spark this larger thought process about what, you know, object-wise what you consume too. And that's kind of what we hope to do with, with this company, or one of the things we hope to do with this company. Well, going back to the price point and kind of having connection to, uh, to things that you consume and buy, I was recently in a specialty food store with a friend, and there was um, a jar of pickles that were made in, in Brooklyn. And my course, friend, my friend, like I know <laughs> my friend exclaimed, good God, $12 for a jar of pickles? And I thought, well, maybe that's how much pickles should cost. Mm -hmm. Those pickles are amazing, let me tell you. <laughs> They're worth it. So do, do you think there's kind of a, a rethinking of how we process value and kind of, and that, that includes like the idea of like where things come from, taking responsibility of, I mean, do you think this is going in a good place? I think it's, it's, it's a going in a good place if it's real. Yeah. I know, like as long as it doesn't pickles, become like this momentum yeah. that it's like you can overcharge then because then right. as long as you make up a story or you have... You, you know, put a crap label on a jar right. of pickles right. and all of a sudden a crap paper label on a jar of pickles and contractual bonus, that's problematic because that hurts everyone's story, right? That hurts the fact that all, like, we're not, you know, we're not trying to... Get away with anything. Get away with anything. <laughs> so <laughs> what about when, um, when big corporations kind of co-opt uh, the yeah. kind of the independent story and aesthetic and kind of use it to push the product? What do you think of that? It's usually unbelievably apparent. I don't, <laughs> I, it's like, I think people see through it faster than oh, they yeah. ever anticipate. I, I don't know. I think it's surprisingly effective. I, I think it's everything from um, really large chains opening up boutique franchises that look and feel like a, oh, an, independent, um, sure. an independent an independent uh, business, or the curated pop up in the store. Yeah, and that's hard too because I think that there, we're not going to see the kind of groundswell of change that we, to be frank, need to see in order to continue to be viable businesses until we get that kind of support. And a lot of, a lot of those like curated pop-ups that you see, some of the ones like the ones that are happening at, at some, of, some of the department stores and stuff here, and like even the one here in town, a lot of those products are made by people like us. And they're supporting that so that it's like, as long as it stays within that certain context, it's got some really positive ramifications. And I think like just on the opposite note, like obviously if they're considering it and making an effort to do that, Maybe it's a sign of it somewhat working because if that's what that it takes point. to yeah. if that's what it takes to reach the consumer and they're gonna do it in a way that you know some people might see through or it might seem disingenuous, it's still uh, the writing on the, the writing is there on the wall saying that the changes are coming in that sense and this is how to speak to this generation. So uh, on the outside looking in. There are the, the pros and cons. At least it's it's taking effect and, and, and they're noticing. I think that's a great point. I mean, yeah. even the fact that like studios like ours are on their radar and on the radar of the general public is yeah. is a sign of things going. It's really hope they just don't rip us off and sell it. Exactly. <laughs> which, which we but that's not working so well. For yeah. We can we can though because they don't want to they don't want to mess with natural dye. Yeah, we got true. we got a little like yeah, out. they don't yeah, yeah that's yeah, like, yeah you've got a good niche going. They're not gonna want to rip their. You're like good luck. Enjoy. Well, I mean, so that comes to a question. I mean, as you both rise in the ranks and as you're becoming more established and visible, I'm sure that you're being approached by uh, really large businesses and organizations. What collaborations do you say no to? 
We uh, we had that happen earlier this year. We had a retailer approach us that wanted to bring us into shop, and they were they were aggressive on their price points, and and part of the I guess with us because we use we use external like American manufacturers, the promise exists where we're doing this and we're all in this to a certain extent we're all in this together. And if at a certain point the request comes through that the price point doesn't make sense for you. Maybe we talk about whether or not it's a good it's a good opportunity altogether. Well, yeah, that particular I mean, instance, they had wanted us to take a certain product that we had developed based on the, the specific manufacturer, and they wanted us to take it overseas. And the whole point of us designing that particular product was because of that manufacturer. And so to break that relationship for us was absolutely a no. Like it was a no-brainer I mean, to say no. Yeah, the idea is that if we get a if we get a big order from this major retailer. All we wanted to We're do all was successful, <laughs> right? They're, they make money, we make money, everybody makes money, and they just they couldn't make the pricing work to where the we were being asked to, and so it was just a matter of kind of going, okay, well, then it doesn't make sense, and just walking away. <laughs> well, so uh, I just kind of want to talk about the fact that um, we live in a, in the throes of a very and kind of fundamentalist capitalism. And so everyone thinks that the main objective is to make a buck, but I mean, you guys doing what you're doing, there's so much more that goes into it. So I mean, how much does that factor into the decisions that you make? Well, don't get me wrong. I mean, we still want to make a buck, but the, the reality- <laughs> But if that's why we were doing this? I mean, <laughs> so that, that's actually a good point. So we, we recently were on vacation and as nerds, instead of just going on vacation, we decided to take a factory tour at Heath Ceramics. And as we're walking around, the Heath factory, the guy just I'm getting choked up. And yeah, just just, just talking about all the processes. The guy just casually mentions that if something is at a shockingly low price point, someone got taken advantage of in the, in the chain the of in the chain of supply. And so it was just one of those things where you're like, it, it hit home for us because it was right around the time we were also thinking about whether or not it made sense to say no to this business. It, it just that I think that that is the that's the issue is finding a way to make sure that if. If we can be successful without anybody getting taken advantage of, that that's the goal. And if we have to take advantage of somebody, then it, what us. good is the money? <laughs> like, I mean, and that, you know, that's that's just, I guess, part of it. I mean, it's it's sad to say, but I mean, that's not the norm, and it's pretty cutting edge. What did you say? Yeah. Yeah. You know, you know. <laughs> 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 um, yeah. B corporations are held. Pretty new stuff, you know? I mean, Patagonia is always, I think, for clothing, always has towed a good line. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, a lot of companies, you know, like you're, you you go to the store, you see your bare designer, t-shirt's 400 bucks, you're like, oh, it's pretty soft, smells a little chemically. You know, you check the tag, oh, made in China, and you kind of think about, you, you know the notion is in your head, you go through, you're like, you know, maybe $4 in fabric, you know, they sewed, sewed a bunch of these, maybe it costs like, you know, four or five bucks to sew this up. They're making a pretty solid profit on me right now on this four hundred dollar T-shirt. You know, just obviously they're and they, you know, they they're not paying people right, and there's just kind of like you, you can see the chain getting broken down. Like who's getting really fucked over on that? Mm -hmm. one. And the people working in the factories. Inflated costs. Yeah. I don't know. I, I think we we side on the on uh, we sit on the same side of the fence in terms of it's like yeah we at the end of the day we are a business and we have to keep the lights on and we have to you know continually you know, make, we have to have a cash flow and it has to be sustainable and it has to allow us enough to grow as well. So, it, but it's always, I don't know, I feel like our ethics are coming first and I don't know what time will tell. Yeah, we, haven't, you know, yeah. we haven't had any like major people approach us with like a shady deal. Yeah, and it's like, 
and still it's like to, at this point too it's like we've made that commitment to not cut corners mm-hmm. uh when we can you know what i mean it's like that that's our challenge and we're banking on the fact that that is going to resonate with people and then that, that way we can actually do this in a way that's Sustainable. Financially, <laughs> and in terms of the product that we create. And emotionally. Yeah. And, that, and to be honest with you, that's a, a huge challenge. It is yeah. a huge challenge to figure that out and, and to, to continue down that path. But I, I feel like that's where, you know, that's the, that's the element of passion. Um, that's the element of entrepreneurship. And that's, uh, I don't know, that's a conscious choice that we continue to make. Because selling out is obviously right around the corner, and there are retailers, there are situations where we could we could cut corners, but I don't know. I mean, we're we don't want to do that. We don't want to. I, do know, that. I love the phrase you used earlier that was like, "This is the rock we stand on." Yeah, and yeah. It was, there is, I mean, you come up with whatever your value system is, and all you can do is try to constantly remind yourself of that, question it, go back to that, and and try to always everything you put out then be to that same standard and it's I mean we're all faced with things on a daily basis whether it's cost or ethics or whatever and it's like I mean at the end of the night it's like how are you going to sleep do you want your name on it all of those things and that kind of gets back to that question too about you know selling do you want the connection to your customer yeah like I want to build this relationship so our customers know what kind of company we are I want them to trust us. And, and fortunately, that's been successful thus far. Is like once people uh, interact with our brand and they start to understand, that's, yeah. that's why they will buy our clothes. Yeah, and keep that's buying. So, yeah, that's and the continually main buy reason. Right. Exactly, that's the main reason. Um, that's why if somebody walks into a store, like they're faced with a choice. Like we, we know that if we remain on that path, you know, hopefully that's going to uh, be supported by the customer. It's like, yeah, hopefully that's what we're doing right now too. Yeah, it's like, it's like long, yeah, long-term vision versus like short-term yeah. gains. Well, that's what we've always said. We love the first-time customer, but we love the return oh, customer. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, well, going back to this concept of value systems and the concept of value, um, I don't want to romanticize the past, but there was a, a there was a moment or ye old times. Where, I mean, people bought things based on who made them, what they were made out of. And I think that began to change probably as early as the 60s, but it really kind of kicked in in the 80s and the 90s where it became about branding and marketing. Mm. You know, production definitely became something that was um, an overseas issue. But it seems like there is this kind of, uh, I'd say in the last like five years, this is starting to change, five to 10 years where people are starting to kind of want that connection. It's like what they buy. They're starting to think about materiality. They're starting to uh, think about who made this. And um, it's not just about marketing. It's about reality. And you guys are definitely a part of that. What do you think about that? It's a positive consumer trend, not just because... Is it a trend, or are things actually like changing significantly? I'm going to say cycle. Just yeah. say it's a cycle. cycle. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a, I don't shop very much because I am so sensitive to that. You know what I mean? Like when I pick up anything, it's hard for me to buy in a store because I I've have that ingrained. You know too much. I, I know too much. <laughs> maybe. Yeah. Yeah. It's so the, it's the burden of knowledge. We say it all the time too. We're the worst consumers. Yeah. <laughs> I don't shop. Like I really don't. Like I, it takes me like four months to buy a pair of shoes because I'm just like so like I have that connection and when I do make a purchase and I do have that relationship it, it is so unique when I know like there's only a handful of places where I will shop and it's because I do know the maker I do know the product and and I have that like connection to it so I, I think it's 
I don't know. I think it's interesting that you point that out. It's like Gabriel's like the ideal shopper. I wish it, the rest of the United States. True. Was, <laughs> you know, where it's like you you're seeking that out. But I I don't know. I think it's interesting too, where it it's there. One of the another realm where that's going on is like vintage and antique shopping. Like these people are out there and they are purchasing these things and they have this intrinsic value or they have this kind of interaction with the product. So it's like, I'm a, I don't know, I'm really excited to see that trickle down with what, with what we're doing. Which is a great segue, something I wanted to talk about. Balance. <laughs> I think, we, you know, I don't, we didn't get too heavy handed, I don't think, with sustainability and, you know, making buying decisions, but I definitely think it is a balance, you know, between buying something brand new and buying something, you know, old. And that's definitely a kind of a, another way of sustainability. And so I don't think it's just about buying brand new, expensive, or, you know, whatever, pricey things all the time. It's about creating a balance and thinking, just being conscious about your decisions. And vintage is a great way to shop sustainably. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's a, a perfect note to end on. Um, thank you so much. Uh, we couldn't have asked for, this is a dream lineup for our premiere episode of, of Beyond This Point. Thank you guys, this is great. Thanks, guys, so much. Beyond This Point is created by Civilization, a design firm rooted in social change. The podcast is audio engineered by Dave West and produced by Eric Blood. Listen to more of our podcasts at beyondthispoint.design.